Our sermon text today is Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And the sermon title is The Theological Virtues. So Colossians 1, 1 through 8, and we will be talking about the theological virtues. Now, classical ethicists, non-Christian and Christian alike, have often stressed virtues. If you take any philosophy course, you'll hear lots of virtue talk. Morality depends on virtues. Even more than that, man will never live the successful, good, full, or complete light apart from the virtues. The Greek philosophers, particularly Plato and Aristotle, stressed what are known as the four cardinal virtues. The four cardinal or the four chief virtues. Those virtues were wisdom, courage, temperance, and justice. Wisdom, courage, temperance, and justice. Aristotle believed that Man's telos, or his purpose in life, was to reach a state of eudaimonia, which is a Greek word that roughly translates blessedness or complete and full happiness. It is a state of being well and doing well in being well. It's a state of being in proper proportion with the divine, whatever that might be for Aristotle. Now, these virtues, wisdom, courage, temperance, and justice, are the qualities, the possession of which, if you have them, they will enable man to live the full and complete life and reach that state of eudaimonia. And a lack of these virtues will stymie that telos or goal. Now, the Greeks were not alone in their understanding of the primacy of the virtues. Any good Christian would readily accept the importance of the virtues of wisdom, courage, temperance, justice. Christians, however, have since the time of the early church, have since the time of Paul, they have placed the emphasis, the stress, not on the cardinal virtues, but what are known as the theological virtues, or the Christian graces. Those are the, uh, the famous triad that we see in Paul's work so often, faith, hope, and love. So not wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance, but faith, hope, and love. St. Thomas Aquinas spent a great deal of time in the 13th century extrapolating these Christian graces or theological virtues. But long before Aquinas, they were a favorite triplicate or trio of the Apostle Paul. Paul uses these words together, faith, hope, and love, at least seven times in his letters, including in our text today, Colossians 1, 1 through 8. Now, if this were a classroom setting, which it is not, I would ask for a response to the following question. So have no fear, do not answer out loud, but answer the question silently to yourself. If I was teaching this passage in a classroom setting, I'd ask my students, so which one of these theological virtues is the most important? Faith, hope, or love? As is often the case with these types of questions, the answer isn't that simple. It's not monochromatic. The proper answer would be something like this. Is faith, hope, or love the most important? Yes. However, if I were actually to stick you and say, no, answer the question. What is the most important, faith, hope, or love? I would expect, as good church people, that we would answer love. Love is the most important. Our culture at large would certainly say this. Right? They'd enthusiastically endorse the idea. 
They dogmatically endorse the idea that love is the most important of the virtues. Right? We love love. We can't get enough love talk. And frankly, it makes me think many unlovely things. The more pontification on love I hear in the secular square. Now, our reasoning as church people for thinking that love is the most important of the virtues might not be rootless, flimsy, and vacuous like the metaphysically atrophied views of our culture. Right? The reason that you think that love is the important is because behind your view stands the bulwark of holy and inspired scripture. Right? You have scripture verses that can back up the fact that love is the most important. Right? When most of us hear the words faith, hope, and love, I assume that it's safe to say the next thing that pops into your mind is, and the greatest of these is love. It's probably where your mind went. The conclusion of Paul's great monologue on love in 1 Corinthians 13 says those exact words. Right? Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, But now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. These are the holy inspired words of Scripture, so they're certainly true. But why did all of our minds jump immediately to that passage? Well, I'd venture to guess it's because most of us have bumper sticker theology. Right, we have Instagram, Twitter theology. We have these tidbits of theology and famous verses that kind of bounce around the back of our minds. And they haven't really been weaved well or synthesized into a unified tapestry. And part of the reason for this, part of the reason for our bumper sticker theology, is that we are all liturgical creatures. Right? We are creatures of liturgy. But for the most part, we practice a false liturgy. We practice a fleeting liturgy. We practice every single day a secular liturgy. We are deeply, deeply shaped by what we constantly do. Our hearts, our minds, and our affections are formed by our daily actions, by our routines. And our daily actions are taken up with a whole host of non-Christian liturgies. Our bodies, and hence our minds, are not attuned to carefully synthesizing scripture and getting a systematized, organized picture of it. A few years back, a Christian philosopher that many of you are familiar with, James K.A. Smith, he explored this idea in a book that I know many of you have read called Desiring the Kingdom. And in Desiring the Kingdom, Smith writes these words about this problem of our non-Christian liturgies. He writes, is drinking Starbucks coffee a ritual? Is mall shopping a form of liturgy? There is a practice to shopping at the mall, which mirrors religion in some ways. There are icons out front, the mannequins, which draw us into the temple. We have a sense of need and seek through the racks to find the holy object, which we proceed with to the altar, the cash register, to consummate our sacrifice. And this is a religion of transaction, of exchange and communion, when invited to worship here, we are, on, we are not only invited to give, we are also invited to take. Now, of course, Smith's language is tongue-in-cheek. Right? It's a way of poking fun at our consumeristic, materialistic tendencies, our consumeristic culture. But he's also making a point, and I think a very good one, about how shopping, in some ways, mirrors religious practice. Right? The point isn't that shopping is religious, although consumerism is. It's that shopping 
and religious practice and anything that we do with our bodies consistently, time after time after time, they train our affections and they train us habitually to learn certain practices within our spirit, to learn and make certain connections within our soul. Right? That is to say, we do things so much, they just become innate. Our bodies start to guide our minds to what we should do. I get that. Our bodies start to guide our minds rather than our minds guiding our bodies. By way of illustration, think to yourself for a second, what letter is directly to the left and to the right of the F key on your keyboard? If your mind is anything like mine, it doesn't know. But if I sat you in front of a computer, you could all just start typing without looking down at the keys. Right? Your body has been trained to tell your mind what to do. I recently was asked at work for the key code to the copier, a place that I've worked at for eight years. And I couldn't remember. So I had to walk over and show the new person how to do it because as soon as I got in front of it, 78737, I remember now. But my body had to be in front of it. My body had to tell my mind what to do. Well, as good Christians, our bodies need to get better at training our minds to synthesize scripture. And in many cases, that might require rote memorization. I've been learning Greek recently. And what I realized right away, that there was no shortcuts. You just have to memorize the words. Right? You just need to get involved in it. You have to practice. You have to put in the time. You have to make it a liturgical thing. So we are liturgical people. And at the center of our liturgy should stand the word of God because it is Christ's living, active word that speaks to us. As one scholar puts it, the gospel is the narrative proclamation of King Jesus. And scripture is a herald which loudly announces this truth. I want to repeat that. The gospel is the narrative proclamation of King Jesus and scripture is a herald that loudly announces this truth. Now, what was a herald? A herald was one who would go before the king and make a proclamation. He would declare a fact. The herald would say something like, Nero has become emperor. The herald would not say, hey guys, if you're interested in trying an experience of living under a cool emperor, I recommend that you give Nero a try. I think that I've personally found it great. I think you might enjoy it as well. No, that's not what a herald does. A herald says, Nero is the emperor, right? Jesus is the savior. Jesus is king. He's not campaigning to be. He's not looking for your vote or your affirmation. He is the king. And scripture is the chief herald that authoritatively shows the truth of this. And not only does it authoritatively tell us that Jesus is king, it authoritatively compels us to the theological virtues. It authoritatively compels you to have faith, hope, and love. We need to become better acquainted with the herald's voice. Because through the spirit of the ascended Christ, the herald is none other than Christ himself, addressing us authoritatively by pure grace. So our passage today, Colossians 1, is a passage that I hope will chasten our knee-jerk reaction 
to overemphasizing one of the theological virtues, usually love, at the expense of the others. This is a passage, Colossians 1, particularly verses 3 through 5, that should reorient our understanding of the virtues, should put a different twist on things, with the emphasis on this passage being on hope. Look, if you would, at the text, Colossians 1, and particularly look at verses 3 through 5. This is Colossians 1, 3 through 5. Paul says, we, gave, um, we give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. So at the very beginning of this apostolic letter, written from prison, most likely Rome, Paul's in Rome in prison at this point, we see that Paul's heart, his mind, is immediately drawn to thanks for those in Colossae. And why is Paul's mind drawn to thanks, driven to thanks? Because he's heard from Epaphras that those in Colossae are exhibiting the full range of the Christian graces. That they are exhibiting faith, hope, and love. They are exhibiting the theological virtues. And for this, Paul is thankful. Now, faith, hope, and love, that's basically shorthand, or I guess longhand, for what it means to be a Christian. The genuine Christian is simply one who has faith, hope, and love. So we should be wary of Christians that lack faith, hope, and love. Likewise, we should be wary of our own condition when we lack faith, hope, and love. But, and this is the big but here, we need to be very careful that we are defining these terms biblically, apostolically, according to the voice of the herald, according to Christ. What we notice in Paul's writings is we see that Paul is not preoccupied or worried about the natural, physical, corporal man. He's not speaking about the man represented by Adam, but he's always talking about the man, the new man, raised in Christ. So when Paul speaks of hope, he's certainly not talking about someone who is naturally optimistic. Right? Paul is not worried about somebody that has a naturally optimistic outlook. That's not the theological virtue of hope. When Paul speaks of love, he's not speaking of someone who is sweet and affectionate by nature. That might be nice, but that's not the theological virtue of love. And when he speaks of faith, he is not speaking of someone who doesn't doubt. That's not the theological virtue of faith. No, rather Paul is worried or speaking to the spiritual man, the man who has died and been raised with Christ already. In regards to faith then, Faith is rather simple. If the spirit of the ascended Christ is working in you, you will have faith. Right? The present life is one marked by faith because the object of our faith is not fully seen. It's not in our possession yet. Right? This is famously pointed out in Hebrews 11.1, 1, which says, Now faith is a confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. We don't fully see right now, so we must have faith. But we also must not forget that the theological virtue of faith is a gift. My father has said many things over the years. He talks a lot. Um, <laughs> talks a lot, a lot, trust me. Uh, more than you know. And he said many things that have stuck with me. 
Lots of them that have gone in my ear and out the other, but many have stuck with me. But there's something that he said about faith that since the time I first heard him say it has always kind of been at the forefront of my theological imagination. It's always stuck with me. And it had to do with a tragic event that many of you might remember or you might be familiar with the story. In the spring of 2001, my youngest sister, my baby sister Elizabeth, she suffered a very cruel and vicious accident. She was at my school, the Spangers School, Chapel Field. And while playing, she jumped out of the window of a parked minivan, and she landed on a half-inch wide rebar pole that was three feet off the ground. She was impaled from her groin all the way to her clavicle. She was rushed to Westchester Medical Center, where after hours upon hours of exploratory surgery, her life hanging in the balance, my parents were told by the surgeon that the rod had missed her aorta, her heart by one millimeter. Her doctor said the rod, and I quote, as if directed by a computer-guided chip, had also missed other major crossing arteries and all her vital organs. He said her survival was miraculous. He expressed wonder as to how she was able to impale herself on a three-foot-high pole and then disimpale herself without losing a drop of blood. However, Elizabeth's injuries were life-threatening. The rod had torn her rectum, her colon, scraped her pancreas, entered her stomach, exited her stomach, split her diaphragm, punctured her left lung, torn four inches of her esophagus, and scratched her clavicle. Now Elizabeth survived and is a healthy 20-something, 24, 25 years old. But I will never forget what my father said when he was asked if he would still have faith if his daughter died. Would you still have faith if your baby daughter, your seven-year-old child died that day? And my father said, if the Lord gave it to me. That always stuck with me. You see, the theological virtue of faith is not something that you hold on to by the power of your human will. Faith is a gift. If for you, faith is you holding on to Jesus, then you are way too big in your own eyes and your Jesus is way too small. The efficacious holding is done by Christ, not by you. The faith that Paul is talking about is this faith of a spiritual man. The Christian man, not the corporal Adamic man. This isn't worldly, secular faith. So it is also with love. And this spiritual love has a particular directedness in our text today. Look, if you would, once again at the text, look at verse 4 and what Paul says about love and the directedness of love. Paul says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, the love Paul is, commanding, or is commending, is thankful for, it's a love for all the saints. It's a love for the church. Right? This is a love that disintegrates borders and towns and nations. This is a love that disintegrates the space-time continuum. Spiritual love is a loving communion of those living, those dead, and those yet to be born, chosen and upheld by Christ before the foundations of the world, right? This is a love that binds us 
to one another. Right? This is a love that binds us to Heidi and Randy Easterbrook. It's a love that binds us to Roger Verdesi and Bud Simpson. Right? It is a love that binds us to all the unborn children in the congregation today, the covenant children of this congregation. It's a love that binds us to John Calvin and Justin Martyr and Polycarp. Right? This is a broader and deeper love than anything the world can understand. Right? It's a love the world can't even begin to conceptualize. How could you make sense of that? It's like trying to imagine a round square. Think of the overflowing love of the church in its corporal, faulty, sinful, physical level alone. It's undoubtedly the church, the greatest sociological phenomenon in the history of the world. The church will take you in and feed you. It will clothe you. It will pray for you. It builds hospitals and heals you. It will build orphanages and house you. The scope of its love, even in its frailty and with all of its warts, is absolutely inexplicable. I came across a song a few weeks back, a rock and roll song by a band called The Wallflowers. Not a huge fan of the band, but this song that was sent to me, it's like nothing I've ever heard before in rock music. It's a song that's clearly about the church, and it is fittingly and beautifully entitled, Hospital for Sinners. I want to read a few words from this song. So this is a rock and roll song called Hospital for Sinners. And it goes like this. In the backwoods of the country and the empire state, wherever there's someone at the crossroad that waits, at the junction of right now and a little too late, You'll see one before you with wide open gates. It's a hospital for sinners. Ain't no museum of saints. There could be a casket, bums on the steps, a baby in a basket being left. It's a good place to shuffle when you've gone through the deck. It's the closest to heaven on earth you can get. It's a shelter for a poor man who will humble a great. It's where derelicts and outlaws can hide for a day. The worst hearts you've known can be salvaged and saved in the same room that lovers' vows are exchanged. It's a hospital for sinners. Ain't no museum of saints. Spiritual love for Paul is directed towards the saints, towards the church, towards the hospital for sinners. And from it flows all the blessings to the entire created order, as it, as we, serve our purpose as heralds of King Jesus. Now, I want you to notice in our text that faith and love are only there because of hope. They are a consequence of hope, not vice versa. Look once again at verse 4 and verse 5 of our text. Paul says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Right? Hope precipitates faith and love. Hope facilitates faith and love. Faith and love are driven by hope. Right? Hope is that big, meaty, beefy fullback that charges through the offensive line first, smashing the way so that faith and love can come in and run free, unencumbered by stress, worry, and the frailties of the human condition. You see, Christian hope 
Christian hope is not cautious optimism. It is the assurance of the reality that in Christ we are a people that live out of the future. We are a futurely eschatological people. We have died and been risen with Christ, who Paul tells us he is the first fruits of the harvest. If we have already received the first fruits, what does that mean but that the harvest is at hand? And it is sure to be plentiful. Now, the harvest is at hand and certain, but we aren't eating of the meal just yet, are we? But our Heavenly Father is all loving, so we can be certain that we will eat. We can have hope that we will eat. And our hope is not speculative because our Father is all good. Right? Our condition right now on this side of the eschaton is like that of the small child on Thanksgiving morning knowing that his mother has already bought all of the groceries for the feast that evening, the kid hopes to eat. But it's not a worrisome hope, right? It's an already accomplished formality. This hope, that type of hope, allows us, opens us up to have faith and love because of the nature of our hope. Look once again at verse 5 of our text. Paul says, our hope is laid up for us in heaven. Your hope is laid up in heaven. What does Paul mean by this? What is laid up for you in heaven? What are you hoping for that's laid up in heaven? Well, it's not just cool stuff, not just new bodies and eternal life. What is laid up for you in heaven is Christ, who has ascended and is sitting at the right hand of his Father. Nothing less than the risen and ascended Christ, that is our hope. He is our hope. Hope, then, should be chastening our over-realized eschatology. Fully consummated union with Christ is our hope and our certain teleological end. It's what all of us are moving towards. The ascended Christ is our hope. The glorious Christ that struck Saul down in his tracks on that Damascus road. Because he was already laid up in heaven and revealed as much to Saul on that road in that dramatic moment, he opened up an avenue for Paul not only to stop persecuting him, but he opened up an avenue for Paul to love unconditionally. Right? Paul's hope was secured. So he was able to live a life of self-emptying love. What was there to lose? He was not of this age. He lived out of the future, which was certain. He just saw it. Think about what that kind of hope can do for us. That kind of hope allows us to love truly and fully, something that only a Christian can do. Right? How can anybody who lacks eschatological end-time hope really love anyone else? While tending to your needs, they're doing nothing more than polishing brass on the proverbial sinking ship. Right? The world's love is ephemeral. It's fleeting. It's vapor. It floats on the wind. The world's love is a sugar rush. It's a momentary high and nothing more. It has no eternal teleology. It's moving towards nothing. The world's love is nothing more than temporary amelioration. But it's not love. The world can't love. True love is a Christian phenomenon. Now, most if not all of you know Frank and Angie Costa. 
If you don't know them, they hide in the back. Get to know them. Now, these people, Frank and Angie, they're the type of people that exude love. Before he knew me, he never met me, I don't think, in person. Frank was at my house for hours lifting heavy furniture, helping me move. The Costas have an absolutely harrowing testimony. Many of you know it. They had a child who was born with a chromosomal DNA mutation. And the child was sickly. And about a year and a half into the child's life, Frank and Angie were called to the hospital because the end was near. Some of Frank and Angie's relatives, who were not Christians at the time, who were not walking with Christ, came to be with them in the hospital in the midst of this hellish, dark night of the soul. And those relatives, they watched Frank pray over his covenant child. They watched him commend her spirit into the hands of his Lord and maker. Those relatives, they watched Angie wash her daughter's feet. All right. Their hope was not cautious optimism. And it allowed them to pour out love on their child. A type of non-temporal, death-defeating love that brought their relatives to faith. Hope allowed for love, which is a medium for faith. Christian hope allows us to pour ourselves out with no worries about whether or not we will get hurt or be mocked or ridiculed. Christian love is foolishness to the world who must guard themselves in safety precautions of the heart. Right? They must guard their hearts. We, however, need no such precautions as we have already died and been raised with Christ. We are open to fully love because death, while still real, and still the enemy has lost its sting. Calvin says of this passage and this hope, meditation on the heavenly life ravishes our affections to the worship of God and exercises of love. Meditations on the heavenly life ravishes our affections to the worship of God and to exercises of love. So hope is not a wishing. It is a confident expectation. It's like the athlete with the fully guaranteed contract. The contract's already signed. The money's in the bank. So pour yourself out. Don't be afraid of injuries. Finish the race because the prize is secured. It is stored up for you. He is stored up for you. People of Westminster, your hope is certain. He is laid up for you in heaven. He is king, so by his grace, in faith, and with much love, let us live unencumbered by fear as the heralds of his kingdom. Amen.